Delta Goodrum there with In This Life. Professor Colin Ellard is a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. And he studies the effect on people of the places they know or visit and how they impact their feelings and behaviour. Now, while the built environment is an important area of his study, we wondered whether there was a role for this type of scientific study known as psychogeography on travel and tourism. So I spoke to him from Ontario late last week. Now, Colin, you are a cognitive neuroscientist. I don't pretend to understand what that means, but I did hear an interview with you where you talked about the effect of place on people, on, on both their mindset and, I guess, inevitably then, on, on their behaviour. This is an interesting area of study. How, how long have you been engaged in this particular area of, uh, of interest, Colin? I guess I would say, I mean, it depends how you, how you look at it. I guess I would say probably about 15 years intensively in this kind of research. Prior to that, I was uh, focused still on problems of space, but looking at the behavior of animals. And it was after doing that for a number of years that it sort of struck me out of the blue that that uh, there was great latitude for studying the same kinds of problems with human beings. And there were all kinds of interesting avenues, including everything from our relationships with natural environments to our relationships with built settings, architecture and cities. Now, as a, as a travel-oriented show, obviously I'm interested in how this might be uh, able to be applied to travel and tourism. I, I gather in the area of the built environment, you probably are of interest to people in architecture and urban design and city planning, etc. What about travel destinations? What about, you know, hotspots around the world, the Barcelonas and the Parises of this world? Are they interested in how people react to the natural environment that they have? The It, it may be something they built, but more often it's uh, it's about whether they're on a, an ice cream hill in Tuscany or whether they're in an urban and dense concrete environment. Right. I, I can't think that I've had very many conversations explicitly about the impact of travel and tourism on the effects that I study, but the, the, the connections are, are kind of obvious. I think, you know, one of the, uh, one of the reasons why we travel, one of the, the joys of actually going somewhere as opposed to reading about it in a book or watching uh, watching a screen or some kind is that we all know that the experience of being in a new place is vivid, can be refreshing, it can be exciting. You know, there are all kinds of different vacations ranging from the, uh, the nice trip to the countryside, a camping experience, for example, to experiencing a new urban environment. And each of those settings, just like the influence that they have on our everyday lives, each of those settings have an impact on how we feel and who we are when we travel for tourism. Uh, do you actually measure um, what is a dopamine or what, it, what, what do you seek to measure when you study humans in these particular types of situations? Yeah, most, most of our work where we're interested in, in, well, let me back up first of all and say that, that we still find that the best kinds of measures to understand people's psychological state come from uh, question and answer, uh, verbal responses, uh, but we also look at physiology. So uh, we look, for example, at people's uh, how people's brains respond to different kinds of settings. We measure brain waves. Right. We also measure um, things like 
it's it's called skin conductance response, which is a fancy name basically for a readout on the state of your sweat glands. So as everybody knows, I think we sweat for all kinds of reasons other than being hot. We um, sweat when we're aroused in all kinds of ways, and it's pretty easy actually to measure those responses from the palms of our from the palms of our hands. And it gives us a nice rough and ready index into people's state of arousal. And again, we know that that can vary quite a bit depending on where you are. So we want sweaty-handed visitors to our country, do we? Well, again, not not necessarily. I mean, that's 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 part part of the. If you want to know whether somebody is really excited, then sure, you can measure a sweat gland response. But don't forget, again, as we all know. That kind of arousal can be either a good thing or a bad thing, depending <laughs> on on the context. Yeah, so absolutely. we have to differentiate between the between the goods and the bads, the highs and the lows, by looking at other kinds of of measures as well. So some of these things you do on the street, but you also have built a laboratory with certain effects in it to judge the response. Obviously, in a in a lab, it's a lot. Uh, cleaner uh, you know you you're taking away a few other variables like the traffic noise and uh, um, maybe the fumes outside or the fact that it's raining D- does it make a big difference to be able to do this study in a controlled environment such as your lab well it's a it's a big trade-off um, you're right that when you do studies in the laboratory using for example immersive virtual reality then we have the ability to control uh, basically everything that an individual sees or hears, and we don't have that when in the real world. Um, but the, the the trade-off is that I think that when you have somebody in the laboratory in, uh, say, a headset experiencing VR, they know that's where they are. And just simply by virtue of them knowing that what they're experiencing is not at every level real, I think changes their responses. Right. So we can use we can use the VR lab to get a really good kind of snapshot into the impact of different kinds of environments. But I still feel as though we haven't actually proven anything until we've shown the same kinds of effects in the real world. Right. And is there a noticeable difference between a built environment and a natural one? Um, you talk about uh, how our propensity towards uh, like in curves, for example, versus something hard and angular. And maybe that goes back to prehistory where we were trying to seek shelter and work out whether we could ambush that rabbit out there for food. How, how do, you, do you measure those differences or, or are they not really that different? Yeah, no, they're, they're huge. In fact, I, I would say that mo- most of the activity in my field over the last at least, well, more than 10, say 20 years, has been preoccupied with the question of what it is about natural environments that produces the the so-called restorative effect. So we know from tons and tons of studies in this field that when people are exposed to scenes of nature, there's a whole range of different kinds of effects that take place, running the gamut from changes in physiology, the kind of thing that I was just describing, to changes in mood, changes in the way that we pay attention to things, um, our cognition, and so we've tried to use those kinds of differences as a tool in developing certain kinds of environments. For example, healthcare settings, people who design healthcare settings know very well that to the extent that you can produce natural environments or natural appearing environments, 
you're going to have better outcomes for people. So you mentioned curves. I mean, that's that's one example, but there are all kinds of, of examples of, for example, the kinds of patterns that are present in, in nature. Um, there's something about those patterns that we know produces this, this restorative effect. And so, again, there's an effort to try to find the, the magic formula and to the extent that we can to try to produce those same kinds of patterns in in urban settings. So all of that, and then at the same time, what's actually much simpler is if you think of a city, making sure that people have ready access to green space in cities. You know, there was a time when we thought of, you know, urban parks as being something that were there basically as, a, as an aesthetic. We liked them because they looked nice. And I think that as time has gone by, we've come to appreciate that they're much more important than that, that those kinds of spaces and our exposure to them in cities are fundamental to our mental health. So who do you, when the rubber hits the road from your research, who do you actually end up consulting to or who comes seeking your advice uh, and what role are they playing in delivering better outcomes for the citizens of, of a particular city or region i think i think the, the 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 most intensive discussions that i've had about this with people in building professions have been with uh, urban planners and urban design teams right. um, because i i think those those groups really historically have understood the importance of health giving urban design to the construction of a psychologically sustainable city I do also have conversations with architects. Um, I think, you know, part, part of the issue, and I think, you know, my colleagues and I talk about this a lot, you know, how, how do we affect positive change in the way that things are built? And I think that the people who actually, this is not surprising, I guess, in a way, the people who actually, um, have the greatest impact on what we have in our cities, what kinds of buildings we have are the people who are paying for them. In other words, the developers. So the, the way to get the most impact is to find ways to convince developers that if they follow sound psychological principles in, in building design or demand those, those kinds of things from the architects who design for them, if we can make that argument and convince those people, then that's our best chance of uh, making more successful buildings in cities. And is there a difference between... Now, your country has a pretty rich First Nation population um, we too in australia is, is there a difference between dealing with a regular citizen exposed to the life life in the big city versus those who really only have known the simple life the the hunter-gatherer type environment i think there's a there's a tremendous difference in in attitudes towards built settings and natural settings and i think that uh it's it's of course very slow progress but i think that we're now in a state in Canada, where we are listening more carefully to those indigenous voices and understanding the impact of the way that we think about our relationship with, with the natural world and the built world, for that matter. And it's interesting, you know, if you, if you look, for example, at the model of Europe, uh, historically, there has been kind of an understanding of, of our role as stewards of our natural settings. Yeah. And in North America, for all kinds of, of interesting historical reasons, I think the model has been more of ownership. 
Whereas for indigenous peoples, the model in North America is stewardship. So I think the, yeah. yeah, so the, so the more you can, uh, make the argument that, look, we're not here to take over and dominate and install our, our sharp edges and clean, clean lines to this landscape. We're here to look after it and to integrate with it. I think inevitably that's to result in, in more sustainable urban design. And yet we've got one of the great natural wonders of the world, the Grand Canyon. I was told when I was there that the average visitor stays 20 minutes. Yeah, I, I, I believe that. Which is but, amazing, you know, really. It's not a single dimension. It's a multi-dimensional opportunity. That's right. I think that is interesting. And I think, you know, in, in part that sort of speaks to the, I guess you'd call it a concern, that often when people are engaged in, in tourism, there is often too much of an emphasis on the importance of being seen to be there. The Instagram experience. Yeah. So I go get my picture taken in front of the Eiffel Tower or standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon or what have you. And then that's the experience. You know, that's that's the proof that I was there. And then I, I, everything else is superfluous. Well, what's, um, the, what's, the, what's, what's the response of a cognitive neuroscientist to this adoration for the selfie? Is it, what's it, What are people trying to say to themselves or to the followers or, or others? What, I mean, is it about, hey, I can spend money on something like this? Or where's it, what are the deep roots of thoughts going on? I'm not. I'm not sure. That's that's not my my field, which is kind of a cop out, I know. But my hunch is that uh, a lot of it has to do with social comparison. You know, in an age where it's it's so easy for us to send these kind of faint signals about where we are and how we're feeling, we become preoccupied with with sending those to each other at the expense of having deep experiences ourselves. I honestly don't know what the answer is to. No, uh, to changing that at all. But. Not a fair question, but <laughs> I'll ask you anyway. Just finally, I'd like to ask you, um, there is talk about long COVID and the overhang from the pandemic that we've all experienced around the world. Is there any sort of psychological long COVID? You know, in, in the work you're doing, do you notice that COVID has fundamentally changed uh, people in, in, in a measurable way? I think that the uh the evidence is just is just not there yet to answer that definitively i suspect though that some of the profound changes that we're seeing in people's long-term physiology that it would be remarkable if there weren't also cognitive changes and you know people talk about things like brain fog for example mm. um I, I don't think we know precisely yet exactly what's going on with those things but again it's it would be it would be more surprising to me if there were not psychological effects on long COVID than if there were. Well, fair enough. Well, Colin, thank you so much for your time. It's been interesting talking to you. It's not a subject I've ever broached before, but it seemed interesting. And obviously, uh, there's there's a demand, at least in the in the built environment, this sort of expertise, evidence based decision making. I guess you'd call it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, thank you so much for being on Travel Writers Radio. I've enjoyed our chat. You're very welcome. Take care. Graham Kemlow there, speaking with Professor Colin Ellard, who's a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Waterloo, Ontario, Canada.